Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Lori Glover. Dr. Glover is currently professor and the John Francis Bannon S.J. Endowed Chair at St. Louis University and is a member of the 2016-17 Class of Research Fellows at the Washington Library. She discusses her book, The Fate of the Revolution, Virginians Debate the Constitution, and you'll hear about the important role that Virginia played in the ratification of the United States Constitution. And now, Doctors Glover and Bradburn. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Doug Bradburn at the Washington Library at beautiful Mount Vernon, and uh, I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Lori Glover. Lori, welcome to Mount Vernon. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to be here. Now, you are a fellow of the library, uh, but you haven't begun your fellowship, or you have begun your fellowship? I have. Um, uh, they were nice enough to let me split it up. It's a month-long fellowship, but it's fall break at my university, so I'm here for a week. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll come back for three weeks in December to finish research. And you're also here to talk about your brand-new book, The Fate of the Revolution, Virginians Debate the Constitution. Uh, that's why I know we invited you to give a book talk. Right, right. Uh, and I've been really excited. As you can see, I tore through this thing. Uh, it's a great book, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But I wanted to talk, um, start with um, the, the, mo the book right before this, Founders as Fathers, The Private Lives and Politics of the American Revolutionaries. Okay. Now, you spoke on that book here at the library as well. I did. I did uh, one of the uh, evening talks over at the, uh, at the visitor center uh, in... I guess April of 14, something like that. That was my first trip here to yeah. do a presentation. And then I was back um, this past summer doing some teacher workshops, which is a wonderful program now, back here as well. Yeah, and I appreciate all the support you've uh, you've given the teacher workshop. It's always great to have uh, wonderful scholars here with the K-12 through educators. Uh, you know, I the Founders' as Fathers book, now I've just mentioned to you a few minutes before we started recording that we're going to talk about this, and you're like, oh, i got to... I got to think about yeah. <laughs> what that's about, and I also realized, oh, I got to think about that too. But one one of the the things that I remember about it was that uh, the conceit of the book seems to be that uh, you're going to look at the founding fathers as uh, in their full capacity, both in their public, but also in their private lives. And and one of the things I remember most strikingly is how much death uh, and and personal trauma a lot of these famous founders are dealing with in their own families. Their wives are dying, their children are dying. Uh, is, that, is that a thing that rings out to you? Absolutely. So, you know, so much of what we know about the founding generation and the leading figures in the political and, and military movement of the American Revolution centers on their, what we today call public exploits, yeah. military command, intellectual contributions, uh, constitutional making, governance, and, uh, you know, it's right and good to celebrate that. That was a remarkable time, uh, marked by remarkable achievements. But they were also 
um, you know, only men mm. who lived in an extraordinary age, but but dealt with the typical things that that people in the 18th century and even today deal with: mm. how to yeah. run a business, uh, how to make a living, uh, how to manage a family, uh, and one of the marks of 18th century family life was the pervasiveness of death. Mm. That iconic picture of the Washington family yeah. that shows him and Martha and what looked like two children are actually two of his step-grandchildren yeah. because their father had passed away, their mother had four little children, and she sent the two older ones to live with their grandmother and their step-grandfather. So yeah, they never forgave her for it either. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, you know, it's a, a, a study in how families were fragmented in yeah. that age by death in a way not dissimilar from how families look today because of divorce. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as a political historian who's written about the politics, you know, it's so rare that uh, one has the skill or acumen to sort of try to bring in you know, what they're dealing with in their lives while they're giving this famous speech or while they're working on this famous yeah. piece of legislation. But of course, we all live in that way, you know, where we're stressed by our whole life as we go we go through and do things. And it's just remarkable how few historians actually do incorporate better that uh, that kind of, that, that complete story of the actors that they're, yeah. you know, writing about. Well, if I had known how hard it was going to be to do that, I probably wouldn't have. What was so hard about it? Well, I started out thinking about the founding generation broadly. And so I was going to do, you know, the big founders you have up in the um, uh, library upstairs. And it occurred to me that what Franklin dealt with in Philadelphia was so different from what Adams was doing in Massachusetts and what... Washington and Jefferson were doing in Virginia that the places they grew up in and lived in shaped their family lives, shaped their political values. And so I couldn't figure out a way to tell that kind of a broad story doing both family and politics. And so I moved back just to Virginia. But even that, Mm. sort of keeping straight who was where when Right. And uh, overlapping of political obligations with and um, uh, abandonment of political obligations for family life was uh, was very yeah. vexing. And just sort of how to structure the book. So there, it uh, looks at five leading uh, Virginians, Mason, Jefferson, Madison, Henry, and Washington. Mm-hmm. And so one way to have done it would be to write five chapters, but that seemed episodic and <laughs> yeah. not the way I wanted to do it and yeah. so it, it was uh, for a long time it was quite a mess and I, <laughs> in the end yeah. I, I was more or less happy with uh, with what I had done but it did not have a natural yeah. arc to it and so it was a real struggle uh, the writing a, of it was a real struggle well it's a brilliant book and I remember it really opened my eyes to a lot of things I thought I knew these these characters in that story well and, and so, so many things just make so much more sense like Mason you know why he's such a localist, and you know he's got all these kids to deal sure. with. Henry's constantly trying to find money to pay for all his kids and his families, and he's, I guess he's got two wives. Yes, he had two yeah. wives and sixteen children total, yeah. Yeah. Uh, spanning you know over the course of four decades right. by their children, yeah. and a good number of sons. And he was responsible for launching them in the world, and then for a long period of time, 
George Mason was a single father. His yeah. first wife died, and he raised his children more or less on his own for a decade. He remarried again later in life and didn't have any children with that second wife. But these were men who were preoccupied with taking care of their children in the here and now and thinking about a legacy for their children. Mm. So they were very reluctant to leave Virginia. And I thought that shaped how they thought about politics, particularly mm. um, operating on a continental and, and a, a yeah. national scale. Yeah, I think it's really well done. Now, your earlier work was on masculinity mm-hmm. and Southern masculinity. Uh, uh, yes. Mostly. Yes. Uh, how did you get in, interested in that field, and what was exciting about it? And you know, when you were in graduate school and coming up. Well, actually, I got interested in that in a class. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching a course on the American Revolution at the University of Tennessee, where I worked for about twelve years. And at the end of uh, the class, the last three weeks was given over to recreating the debates about the Constitution. And I divided the students up, Federalist, Anti-Federalist, and Undecided, and we basically recreated the Virginia debates. Mm -hmm. So it happened, we started uh, the students reading about the same time as it was time to register. Mm. So I had two young men in the front row, and they were talking about what they were gonna take the next semester, and one's father was a physician, and he was putting a lot of pressure on his son to go into the medical field. (laughs) And so somehow in that student conversation, they were thinking about having read Madison's writings and thinking about, you know, their own careers. And one said to the other, can you imagine being James Madison's son? Like what kind of pressure that must have been? (laughs) And so they asked me if Madison had any sons. And even Mm. though I'd taught the American Revolution for several years, I didn't know. Yeah. So I got interested in finding out the answer to that question, Mm. which made me interested in figuring out what was it like to grow up Mm. in the shadow of the founding generation. Great historical question, yeah. 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 And it was hard. (laughs) It's what you discovered. Yes, yes, it was very challenging. (laughs) And I focused on on just the South then and made more challenging by the fact that, you know, they were uh, mostly rich. Uh, heavily entitled, have been trained since childhood in the way you know Jefferson wrote about with a sort of practice domination of slave mastery. Yeah. Um, and so they did. But they not, lived through a changing economy as they well. They lived through a, a terribly of, changing economy. Yeah, and then if you think about it, like no matter what you do in the early republic, you can't yeah. match yeah. the accomplishments of the founding generation. You can't yeah. live up to the example yeah. of the previous generation because there's just no historical moment to yeah. meet. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess the Civil War is the next big chance. I, I guess. But it's sort of not unlike the filiopietism of the Puritan generation, you know, mm-hmm. the, the fathers of New England and their, right. and their children and grandchildren Absolutely. and their struggles yes, as I, they go from being these cosmopolitan very engaged, you know, world transforming figures to right. these provincial yes, farmers in, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, settle down and farm yeah, yeah. after, you know, you've been sent on yeah. an errand from God himself. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, well, and, and such great work. And, and, and so you've been wanting to get to this story of the Virginia uh, Convention for a long time, it sounds like. Well, I've been interested in that yeah. for uh, some time. I taught it a lot. 
Um, and then uh, Johns Hopkins University has a, a Johns Hopkins University Press has a series called Witness to History, mm-hmm. uh, and they're relatively short books, sixty to seventy-five thousand words, uh, targeted to a general audience and to upper-level course adoption. Mm-hmm. And so the editor of my book on masculinity in the early South was mm-hmm. w- working on this series, and he said, "Would you like to do something?" And I said, "You bet." That's great. Uh, and so that's that's how I wound well, up doing The Fate of the Revolution. So Peter Charles Hoffer is one of the editors. I'm surprised Correct. he just doesn't write all the books himself. I mean, he, <laughs> Well, I think he's done about three or four. <laughs> I mean, he is so productive. He's it's very really prolific. extraordinary. Yes. And it's such yeah. great little studies of, case, you know, particularly court cases yes. and different things like that, yeah. which are such a fun thing to teach and read. But I think you've, uh, I mean, I think it's a real masterpiece. I couldn't put it down. Now, I, I'm a big you know, I, I'm a historian of Virginia. I love the history of these these founders in action. But I think you you've you structured the book, which is a study of Virginians debating the Constitution um, in 1777, 1778. You know, building up to the Great Convention that they mm-hmm. have. I mean, it reads. Uh, it's just really driven and compelling because you just want to find out what's going to happen, yeah. even though we know what happens. <laughs> well, it was, in that sense, it was the exact opposite of Founders as Fathers. It had a mm. completely natural arc to it. Yeah. So you it's leave, chronological. That's, that's right. Nice. You leave Philadelphia <laughs> in September yeah. of 87. Yeah. Uh, the Virginia Convention is in June of 88. Mm. Uh, and there are wonderful materials to research yeah. it, including the first ever yeah. transcription of a late 18th century legislative proceeding. Uh, the, uh, the Virginians were very conscious of their place in history and uh, felt a sense of duty to record mm. what they were doing. So, so, so that, But that person that did it, he was a migrant who lived in Petersburg. Yeah, it's a lawyer. What was his name yeah. Robinson? Robertson, yeah. Uh, so did, did he offer or did they seek this person out? No, he wanted to do okay. it. And it was yeah. a conversation about whether or not they would allow him to do it. Yeah, because um, that was just an emerging thing in the in the late 18th century, certainly in America. He didn't right. have many of this, I mean, no many his, examples. His thinking was, I'm, I'm sure he thought, I'll make some money. But the main thing was mm. there were all these people in Virginia who desperately wanted to know what was going on yeah. in the convention and couldn't get to Richmond. And so, um, you know, he thought, well, if I do this, we can print it in, uh, I think there were about 10, I think there were 10 uh, weekly newspapers in Virginia at the time. And Mm. so we can, you know, spread the information that way. But it, so I sat down, um, I guess it was four Junes ago. They met on June the 2nd and they voted on June 26th. And so four Junes ago, I sat down mm. with the modern uh, version of the um, transcription of the debate proceedings, and I read with them in real time. Mm. So on June the 1st, That's I read great. only what happened that day. And, you know, by about the 23rd How did you June, not read ahead? Well, I, mean, I, I controlled myself <laughs> until about the 23rd, and then I thought, oh, what the hell with that? I, I can't stop. <laughs> Well, so tell, tell me about the process. So you were you were reading uh, so the day June third, and you're reading the first speeches or whatever. So then, were you taking notes? I mean, how did you, were, well, or I, did you just want to read it and then go back and work on it? I just sat down and read it yeah. first thing in the morning. Yeah. And then I went back and took notes on it 
in the afternoon. Was there other correspondence you had amassed, you know, from those dates that you also read? Yeah, absolutely. Newspaper reports? I mean, was it the whole day you were kind of looking at? Or? Yeah, so the Wisconsin Historical Society has this incredible project called the Documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution. Yeah. It's ongoing. But they did three volumes on Virginia, and it is a masterpiece mm. of documentary editing. They have private letters, they have newspaper accounts, they have all the treatises that were published uh, in the newspaper in Virginia. And so uh, I, I read that as well, and, and what that made me realize was that the debate in Richmond, which I had been so captivated with, mm. had been long rehearsed, yeah. you know, in the 10 months before uh. that all of those ideas had been bandied about in the newspapers in Virginia, yeah. in private correspondence in Virginia, and it linked Virginia to other states. Uh, and so, the, you know, they, they called it, um, you know, out of doors. Mm -hmm. The debate mm -hmm. out of doors was fascinating and all prelude to and rehearsal for yeah. what went on inside the formal debates in uh, in Richmond in, in 80, June 88. Well, so let's talk a little bit about Virginia as a as a as a political entity, as a as a state, yeah. uh, as a society, as a culture, mm -hmm. uh, why did Virginia matter uh, in this story in, in a particular way? So there are a number of reasons why Virginia mattered so much in the story of the ratification of the Constitution, not just in Virginia, but for the whole country. Hmm. First of all, about one in six Americans lived in Virginia mm. in 1787-88. It was the most populous state. It was also geographically the largest state. In the beginning, everything was Virginia. That's right. In the beginning, everything <laughs> was Virginia. And, you know, <coughs> sort of the location of yeah. Virginia meant that if the people of Virginia, this huge yeah. population in Virginia, located in the middle of the other states, didn't support the Constitution, then how practically, logistically, yeah. would the southern states and the mid-Atlantic yeah. and New England states communicate? We'll, we'll talk about that geography, too, yeah. a little bit, because it's not the Virginia of today, because no. it would have included, obviously, West Virginia, but what else? It also included Kentucky. Yeah. And so in the debates, there were all sorts of um, pitches made to, well, the formal debates and the debates leading up to the debates, pitches made to appeals uh, directed toward the Kentucky mm -hmm. district, um, which, which I thought turned out to be very important in their debates. But the other reason, and I think the really maybe the most important reason why Virginia was crucial to the ratification story is not about space or population, but it's about recent history. Mm. Like this is the home yeah. of Patrick Henry. Mm. This is the home of Thomas Jefferson. And most importantly, this is the home of George Washington. Amen. That's right. And so if the home of these icons of the revolution decides not to become part of the United States, then how can there be a no. United States? And then uh, related to Washington, there's the very specific matter of many Americans were skittish about the Constitution. Mm. They worried about the structure. It seemed like the creation of a distant centralized government that they had fled from Britain. Right, isn't but this was, just what we just had? That's right, yeah. but it was widely known that Washington supported the Constitution. And by November of 87, it was pretty widely known that Washington would be willing to serve as the first president. Mm -hmm. And so that made a lot of people feel more comfortable about the Constitution. But if Virginia doesn't ratify, 
if the home state of George Washington is not in the United States, then yeah. he can't be the president. And That's, so yeah, you then what happens next? There's a line you use a few <laughs> times in here about if, if Virginia doesn't ratify, then George Washington won't be a citizen of the United States, so he can't be president. And I wondered about that. It's so interesting thinking of George Washington as not a citizen of the United States. Yes. I, I wonder how... And, and certainly, I guess that's what happened in Rhode Island, is in essence, these people were, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they were outside of the Union yeah. from having been in the Union. Yeah. It's, a, it's a weird Brexit kind of vote going on. You know, it's sort of like, yeah, you know, do you want to be sure. a part of this bigger thing and what's going to happen and some of the hysteria about what will happen if we don't and what yes. will happen if we do. Uh, anyway, so uh, it was an interesting turn of phrase. I wonder if uh, George Washington might have been adopted by a different state. Well, I'm sure there would have been many states clamoring to, uh, to, yeah. to claim it. <laughs> That's interesting. So, okay, so um, uh, so the so the book begins really laying out, you know, what happened in Philadelphia, and, of mm-hmm. course, the Virginian role there is a very large one. I mean, sure. the Virginia plan, Madison, and, and whatnot. But that's a more familiar tale, I think, than for most of the readers. You're, you're trying, But what's the key thing, I think, that you need to bring out of the Philadelphia story to, that's going to you know be important in the Virginia debates. Yeah, I think uh, people remember uh, Washington presiding. Yeah. And they remember it was Madison's plan, and Madison's the principal architect not yeah. only of the design but of the conversation as it unfolds in Philadelphia. But you know George Mason was but, also yeah. representing Virginia in um, uh, in Philadelphia, and he refused to sign. Yeah. The governor of the state. Of Virginia, who was also representing in Philadelphia, refused to sign. Yeah, and yeah. then that's a, a, those yeah. here are such. Well, we'll get to them, yeah. but that's yeah, that's so important because yes. there's only three people who are in Philadelphia who don't sign, that's and right. two of them are Virginians and that's right. Virginians of major uh, influence that's in right. the state. Yeah, and the so the Virginia delegate they voted by delegations yeah. uh, until. Actually, the Virginia Ratification Convention, when people voted as individuals, mm. but they voted by delegation, and the Virginia delegation almost didn't vote mm. in favor yeah. of the Constitution. And so that this evenly divided yeah. nature of the Virginia delegation in Philadelphia was um, a predictor of what was going to unfold. And then they had to go yeah. to New York and <laughs> reveal the secret... Um, radically new design to the Confederation Congress and right. the Virginia representatives there were particularly Richard Henry Lee outraged yeah. uh, at, at what they saw so the tension yeah and I think that story is really lost too I mean yeah. sort of like we all think of the ratification story we go straight from Philly and then all of a sudden we're we're away you know it's the state conventions but that that little, little interregnum where the where the current Congress the Continental Congress has to decide how to present this to the people. That's right. And it could have gone a lot of different ways. It could have. There were 33, I believe, um, representatives in the Continental, uh, Confederation Congress, excuse me, 33 representatives in the Confederation Congress. Ten of them had been at the Philadelphia Convention. So mm-hmm. they, those ten arrived from Philadelphia yeah. back in New Amazing. York, and they're charged with vetting their own secret plan. So you can understand why Richard Henry Lee thought it was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's right, because it was. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, in some cases, they, you know, yeah. you know Beautifully uh, sometimes and a duck is just a duck. That's right. right. And, of course, they had the whole summer to yeah. anticipate and refine answers to criticism. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the people in New York are caught off guard 
right. by, by what they're presented, and they raise criticisms which have yeah. already been rehearsed in Philadelphia all summer long. Well, and that's a, that's a storyline you see in other states as well, that the Federalists are prepared, the Anti-Federalists yeah. are really not. They don't really have a shared complaint all the time. They don't really have an alternative. And in places like Pennsylvania, the convention happens before really anybody's had a chance to organize at all. Yes, yes. And so it passes in a state that it probably would have had a really tough time in uh, if all the Westerners had been, you know, kind of sure. engaged. Um, and so you so you have this, this story in Virginia then where the Anti-Federalists are actually going to get a chance to prepare a little bit. Yes, yes. So, um, to, yeah. so one of the things that... Um, that factored into, I thought, ultimately what happened in Virginia was time. Mm. So it, it fell to the Virginia Assembly to create the ratification convention after the charge came out of um, the Confederation Congress. Mm -hmm. And Patrick Henry ran the Virginia Assembly, in effect. He was a, a great um, force to be reckoned with. Yeah. And he and the other anti-federalists in Virginia thought that time would be their friend, right? That in the immediate wake of the revelation of the Constitution, that people had been, uh, you know, seduced by the fact that George Washington supported the Constitution, yeah. that um, Benjamin Franklin supported the Constitution, and and desperate for some solution to the turmoil under the Articles of Confederation. But Henry and Mason and others thought with time, Virginians would see what the Constitution really said, not what its supporters claimed yeah. that it said, and that with time that they would never give over the sovereignty of Virginia mm -hmm. to this distant centralized power. And so they think the anti-federalists within the legislature, and, and it was an anti-federalist majority in the Virginia Assembly, they thought by moving the convention into the distant future, right, like June yeah. of 1788, that yeah. that would give people a time to educate themselves yeah. and to get over the quick seduction of right. a fix right. and to really study the document. Yeah. And the anti-federalists thought time would be their friend too. One of the people that when Washington arrives back from Philadelphia and he sends the Constitution and some comments on it is is Henry. Yes. I mean, does he does he does he hold out hopes that Henry will be a supporter? Does he? I mean, he obviously knows Henry is a yeah. very important political figure that needs to be engaged in some way. But but what do we know about Henry's sort of predilections before the Constitutional? I mean, do we do we know that he's necessarily going to be an anti-federalist? No, I don't think we know that. I mean, yeah. Henry is the least intellectually, politically consistent. Right. Hard of, to predict. The, it's hard to predict what he's going to think. When yeah. Washington got back, he sent Henry and two other uh, former governors of the state okay. of Virginia copies of the Constitution. He wrote the same letter to all three right. men and said, you know, here, we want to know what you think. And, you know, just out of courtesy, here, here's what Yeah. Well, in Washington, so many times that year we'll write, well, I'm not going to give an opinion yes. on it, but I think if we don't do this, we'll have anarchy. Yes, but <laughs> I'm not giving like, an opinion on I'm it. I'm not trying to, you know, influence you, but this yeah. if we don't do this, we're in deep trouble. Yeah. And the, the masterful thing I thought that happened there uh, on Henry's behalf was for one moment in his life, he was absolutely silent. Yeah. I love the way you do that. Yeah, because it's sort of like everybody else, all the 
immediately everybody starts yammering. Yes. And everybody wants to know what Henry, Henry thinks, and there's, yeah, yeah. crickets. So he, he's, in, in that sense, I think it's a really savvy move. Uh, move yeah. right? He's sort of figuring out politically what's the right way yes, to Yes, and this what thing. is the best way yeah. to reveal, you know, what was a virulent yeah. contempt. The what, what is well, the best timing to do that? Because the political choices are, there's a couple of them. One is you could do like Rhode Island and refuse to call a convention. Sure. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He does call he a convention. That's right. right. He does are call you, a convention. Yeah. Uh, and now, so only just shortly before the Virginia Assembly met to create the, or to decide whether or not they would create a ratification convention, did Henry finally reveal his thoughts. So that it have the greatest political weight. Yeah. And then uh, supporters of the Constitution feared that he would use his influence within the Assembly to just go the Rhode Island route and refuse to call a convention. Yeah. But yeah. he checkmated them on that and said, no, we will have one. But then he begins working behind the scenes with the design of the convention, uh, with uh, mm. whether people had to live in the county they were represented, right, right. and the timing of it in particular yeah. to play to his his greatest advantage. But 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 then he also, I mean, he's he's going to be part of a movement to try to think about we need amendments before we approve the Constitution, yes. and so somehow those, that's going to happen, and maybe a second convention, yeah. and we're going to pay to send delegates to a second convention, and. Sort of trying to put that in the minds of the people. Yes. That we don't have to just vote up and down on this thing. We can continue the process of trying to improve it. Yeah, and you can see why um, then there was so much controversy within Virginia about the process yeah. of even debating the Constitution. Right. Because here's one of the most powerful, or the most powerful man in the state saying, well, there are other options besides what the yeah. Confederation Congress has told us, which is yes or no. They were just parroting the Philadelphia delegates with it. They wanted an up or down vote. Yeah. And so he opens up all these other possibilities. At the same time, that inadvertently, I think, plays into the hands of the Federalist mm. because it's a recipe for chaos. And as you pointed out, the Federalists have the great advantage of a plan. Yeah. And okay. so, you know, every time there's a criticism of every part of the Constitution, then they have a ready response, which is, what is your solution? And at one moment, the solution is a second convention. And yeah. at another point, a solution is amendments before ratifying. But then how will all of that work out? And so, you know, I think I think the fact that the Federalists had a plan was a tremendous yeah. power to them. Uh, so the way you talk about the debate and how it plays out over the year then is it, it's happening out of doors, it's in the sure. newspapers, it's, it's sort of everybody's talking about it yes. all the time. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? It's a, it's a debate that's happening at multiple levels. I mean, it's not high ideals all the time. A lot of it's very personal. Sure. And negative. Sure. But it's also a lot of high-minded ideals and principles and yeah. very sophisticated conversations about the nature of representation, hmm. about um, sovereignty, about how to protect individual rights against uh, governmental power, and on the other hand, how to promote uh, social and political stability without infringing on individual rights. So there are a lot of very serious, very high-minded debates, and layered in with that is 
sort of naked politicking for votes, mm-hmm. um, uh, manipulation of stories about um, foreign affairs, and then just uh, rumors and lies about mm. what men were thinking yeah. and why. So it was all of that together. Yeah. But I, I don't think the I don't think the tenor of it uh, was deeply personal, um, divorced from philosophical yeah. and political considerations. One of the things that comes across clearly in your study is it's very hard to generalize about why people were Federalists or yeah. Anti-Federalists based yeah. on socioeconomic, class issues, geographic issues, there's some of that, but um, religion, sure. uh, you know, these, these, you know, how do we group people? And, you know, so is the Beardian thesis dead in your uh, study here? Yeah, I think it's uh, way more complicated than that. I mean, I think yeah. all of the factors you just listed weighed on uh, voters' minds when they chose their delegates yeah. to the Virginia Convention. And I think it weighed on the minds of the delegates in Richmond as they were listening to the conversations and reflecting on everything that had happened over the 10 prior months and trying to figure out how exactly they were going to vote. I do think time in the end worked not to the anti-Federalist advantage, but to the Federalist advantage, because by the time Virginia met, Seven yeah, and other seven states are rat- yeah, happening. Ratified, yeah. so you know um, the uh, the governor who had been against the Constitution in Philadelphia was by the time the convention met yeah. now for it because he said, you know, the only question now is the Constitution or the destruction of the Union. Yeah, that that's yeah. it. Yeah. So that mattered. And but that I, is an interesting yeah. point because in some you know so there's a sort of deference is a term that comes up a lot in your book, but in some ways there's a deference to the other states. It's kind of like, well, we've got all these other Americans, these other states who've agreed to this thing now. Yes. I mean, you know, how if if we don't agree to it, we're basically telling them they're fools or, you know, you know, it's, there's a weird dynamic there. I I don't think that comes in as much. Yeah, I mean, there is a respect for, um, you know, Pennsylvania, and well, it does harden options, and, you know, it hardens yes. options because if you if you do get to nine without Virginia, then why will they call a second convention? You know, That's they, right. you know, there's no, those options sort of are disappearing as more states ratify. Right. And the whole issue of conditional amendments, yeah. you know, that, that yeah, right. Virginia will ratify only if these changes are made. It seems to How is that gonna obnoxious yeah. That's in the right. face of so many other states. That's right. Uh, led by loyal patriots and, and well-known, prominent mm. revolutionary heroes, you know that those states had already yeah. accepted the Constitution, and Virginia is now going to mm. to dictate to them and say, "We know better, or we're not going to yeah. give." I mean, it, it yeah. got it, to be it, it got to be quite a mess. Well, in that sense, so that's so I finally start to understand what Randolph's saying. Then I yes. think it's, is that this like yeah, so they're really you've lost some of these other options that if you were. Johnny on the spot in November, maybe, you know, you could have yeah. gotten a second convention going or something. But, you know, yeah, as these other states ratify, it really narrows what you can do. On the other hand, it does seem like the Virginians love to be sort of at the pivot of history here. Because sure. all their speeches are about, <laughs> this is going to impact millions of people, not yes. only in this country, but all over the world. That's right. They love that. And and for, <laughs> for the future going forward. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so they love to see themselves as the ninth state in debate. The most important. That's right. We're the ones that will decide the fate of the world, you know. Although, in a way, I mean, maybe not the fate of the world. They say this, though. I mean, that's what they say. They do say that, but they certainly were going to decide the fate of the Constitution more than any other state. Mm. But, yeah, there's that great line now. I can't remember who said it, but we're going to decide... Um, not the fate of a country, but of the world, not that of citizens today, but of millions going forward. Yeah. Uh, no, they, I went back and forth on, on Randolph. Yeah. You know, he's, um, well, he's kind of a wobbly... He, he, seen, he comes person. off pretty poorly, I think, in mm. the book. So this is Edmund Randolph. Yeah. This is the governor of Virginia who, yeah. who, uh, who, who is at the Constitution Convention, presents the Virginia plan, yes. uh, <laughs> and then doesn't sign the Constitution at yes. the end, and then doesn't tell anybody why he doesn't sign it when he gets back to Virginia yes. for months That's on end. Right. He says, I will tell people in due time. He's yes. the governor. Yes. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, he has. A, he kind of has a secret plan that he's going to what, reveal. I guess what time. doesn't come across in the book is sort of like, okay, yeah, he's ambitious. You mentioned he's ambitious. He's got, you know, plans. Yeah. What I don't understand is why anybody likes him. I mean, why is he a powerful politician to begin with? Yes, and, you know, he uh, won re-election as a governor in, in, the, midst re- of this. Refu- in the middle of refusing to say why he had yeah. signed the Constitution. His, his cousin called him a, remember this, a chameleon on an aspen, yeah. always quaking, always changing. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, well, and that must be yeah. fundamental to him as a politician, because this is how Jefferson complained about him when he was in Washington's yeah. cabinet. This guy was blow, a reed blowing in the wind. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that he's he. And then you have the French ambassador, well, some ambassador talking about Randolph as being kind of always with his finger in the yes. air to feel the the popular yeah. winds. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think he was shrewd enough to know when yeah. he left Philadelphia that what they had created was not going to go over well in Virginia. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. he he didn't. No, nobody knew what the final vote was going to be, but he knew it would be deeply controversial. Which seems odd because here, this is a man whose father was a loyalist. I mean, this is a guy who who split his own family apart in the midst of the revolution. Yeah, clearly on some kind of principled stance, um, uh, because it wasn't what his daddy wanted him to do. Well, you know, I mean, so, <laughs> well, that's you know, so, you know, and he was sort of a young man of the revolution, yeah. but it seems like he kind of so you know becomes a, a more politic, I yeah. guess, as he ages. But, and, uh, you know, yeah. part of why I, uh, I guess I didn't like him very much. No. As you the story do, yeah, it doesn't come Maybe out Maybe I nice. wasn't fair to him, but well. part of why was at the very end of the debate. Yeah, yeah. You know, Patrick Henry makes this incredibly <laughs> yeah. magnanimous and, and still timely speech. Yeah, very timely. You know, I'm going to lose. But I'm going to be peaceful, and I'm going to work as hard as I can within the bounds of the law to see the Constitution changed to protect uh, the liberty of the citizens. Yeah. And it's a, it's a moving moment for Henry to concede the loss of political power, the loss of the vote, and then Randolph just steps all over it because he gets up again <laughs> and tries to defend his conduct over the last yeah. You know, ten months, and I just thought. Yeah, you had the it swelling music. Small. You had the swelling <laughs> yes. music there, and then it's like, oh, uh, just yeah. let me add a. And it's something like you know, in case some future analyst would you know you know would yes. wonder about why I didn't sign the Constitution. Let it be said that 
So it's again all about him, right yes. at the end after this magnanimous all about him pose of, of Henry. To which Very I odd. took due note. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, clearly. Yeah, so now we all know. Some future analyst has yes. uh, has shared that with us. But maybe maybe he was misrepresented in the actual uh, by the recorder who didn't like him. Well, that, that's possible too. <laughs> so uh, so Henry's a uh, a fascinating figure yes. at this. Well, set, let's just set the stage quickly for people on the the actual convention itself. So we finally get to June, right. and they're going to have this convention. It's going to be in Richmond. Richmond is a cow town. There's nothing Correct. in Richmond. Right. Uh, where are they going to meet? They meet at the new theater, which um, has was destroyed, I believe, in a fire in the early 19th century. But it was the lar- they they met originally in the um, legislative uh, uh, where the legislative body was meeting, but there wasn't enough space. There were all these spectators. Yeah. And, and they they knew that it, that would be insufficient, so they moved right. to the largest space. Uh, in There's 170 odd delegates. There's 170 delegates, although some of them are not seated because yeah. there are disputed. Yeah. Um, well, there's there's ultimately like 168 votes. So. Yes. So, 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 but some they, they went back and forth, like there was a committee on rules and elections right. that was meeting off and on, but. Right. but Basically, 170 people had ostensibly been elected, and then there were several hundred yeah. who wanted to come in. That's observe. amazing. Uh, and the great icons of the Revolutionary Age yeah. were pitted against one another. Yeah, no, it's a, it's well, as you say in the book, it's it's so fitting that they're in a theater because this was great. Yes. This was great theater. <laughs> I mean, this really was political theater on the grandest sort of ancient Roman scale. You've Absolutely. got this, you know, great body of People, you've got this concourse of, you know, uh, audience members, uh, and then these, then people just take the stage for hours on end, hours on haranguing end. each other. Yes, but it sounded like a pretty narrow cast of characters that was actually speaking for most of the twenty mm-hmm. odd days until the end, where you get some others sort of popping. Yeah, up. is I, that the case, or did you just not? Were you no, able? No, no, uh, that's the case. Yeah, uh, there were about maybe eight or ten yeah. men who spoke over the course of. Most of the month, uh, dominated by Henry, by Patrick Henry, George Mason, um, James Madison, Edmund Randolph, mm. Edmund Pendleton. I mean, all the names that you yeah, would recognize. Yeah, so these. Pendleton is so Ed, we haven't talked Edmund Pendleton. Yeah. So he's elected to the chair. Yes, he's been around. I mean, he was he was in the first Continental Congress. Yes, he's, he's been the speaker old. of the Virginia House yes. of Delegates. I mean, yes. he'd been a power in the 1760s in Virginia That's right. politics. And, and, and deeply influential. George Wythe was there. And yeah. so those yeah. men dominated the conversation for most of the convention. Yeah. But then there's this really moving thing that happens yeah. in the last two days. Uh, and that is that undecided delegates, some men from the Kentucky district, um, men whose names you wouldn't necessarily recognize, get up and address the crowd and address history. And they're very explicit, saying, I, yeah. I want to be on the record. I want posterity to know mm. I voted yes or I voted no. And so you can, it, as you're reading the transcription, you can almost see like Henry and Madison sitting, you know, like they recede yeah. from the stage and they're sitting down and these other men come forward and yeah. and I found that I found that very moving yeah. that um, that that otherwise ordinary men, or you may know, prominent in a small county in yeah. southwest of Virginia or in uh, what became Kentucky thought, 
I need to speak to history and I want the people I represent and my children and my children's yep. children to know this is what I this is what I thought at this moment. So that was one of my favorite parts of the formal debate and it brought full circle to the you know all the newspaper wars that went on in the fall and winter and uh, private conversations that went on in uh, in personal letters. Well, Virginia is in such a weird moment uh, in which they're in many cases they want things to operate in some kind of colonial deferential way where the you know the worthies of the county are there making disinterested decisions yeah. for the common good but on the other hand they've lived through the revolution and people aren't behaving yeah. like they used to yeah. uh, in many cases and so the uh, you know the people are speaking um, they're they're out in force they're not as deferential uh, socially culturally and also politically but yet we're still also not in, you know, Jacksonian democracy, you know, we're, so we're in this kind of halfway house between sort of a colonial deferential politics and a, you know, more democratical representational politics or, or retail politics, Absolutely. I guess. And they all are aware of this, too. That's right. And there are, you know, deep conversations before the county court days that people uh, met and voted on their county court days in March yeah. for delegates. And there are deep conversations about what is the nature of the representation in the convention. So should right, the right. two people Can we sing, bind these people? Yeah, right. should they represent the will of the majority of the people in the county? Yeah. Or should they be, you know, in the uh, Republican sense, like disinterested yeah. above the fray and listen to reason and decide on their yeah, own? Yeah, they'll should decide on behalf them? because they're yes. they're more educated, they're better men, they're, you know, they yes. will know what to do. Yeah. We need to pick the best men. So it seems like a mix of, of Absolutely. things. Absolutely. So they're working yeah. through how yeah. representation will practically work. And in the end... And they still got the out loud voting and all that. Where that's people right. got to walk, stand up and say, I'm voting for, you know, you know Nelson or whoever. Yeah. Right? I mean, in the end, though, when they calculated the votes, there were... Um, it was 89 to 79, so that five votes in the opposite mm. direction yeah. Virginia would not have ratified. And 10 votes cast on June the 25th, 10 votes, were in contradiction to the clear views of the constituents. And in two of those cases, the direct um, directions to yeah. the delegates. And so, you know, that yeah. how Amazing. people actually behaved once they were in convention yeah. did not always comport with what people what in the, the counties electors thought they were getting. thought they were going to <laughs> do, but it, I mean, it yeah. was um, it was it was really interesting to watch that unfold and see that transition mm. in real time between deference to your political mm. betters and um, majority rule. Yeah, uh, one of the things that struck me in 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 the book is that well, a lot of times when you read about the Virginia Convention, people have written about it. And they talk about this tactic of voting by part by part. Or, you know, we're going to vote clause by clause of the Constitution. And this is going to suit the Federalists because they're so prepared. Yeah. But you point out that it's an anti-Federalist plan, actually, to do that. Because they thought this would build up so many complaints about the whole thing. By the end, it would just be a mess of, of complaints. Yeah, that was uh, George Mason's proposal, that they yeah. go clause by clause. And he was actually... I, for some reason, I always thought that was like a Madison move. Well... Maybe that's... It, it, it uh, seems uh, like it would be a Madison. Yeah. Madison supported yeah, but it because they agree, it was they agree. right yeah. in line with yeah. how Madison thought. Right? Like, he didn't... Right. He didn't stop 
right. uh, holding on to one idea until yeah. he'd weighed everything and then move on to the next. So it fit perfectly with how yeah. his mind worked. But Mason had been in contact with Richard Henry Lee, who was mm. in New York and was in contact with Federalist in other states, including in uh, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. And Richard Henry Lee concluded that this push for a quick decision yeah. Uh, was the was the real Federalist that, plan. That's yeah. the real gambit. And so he thought, well, if you... And he coached Ma yeah. uh, George Mason, and Mason uh, supported this in the Virginia Convention. If you just move slowly, methodically, through yeah. the weight of the criticisms yeah. over time will overwhelm yeah. support for the Constitution. Now, he may have been... Wrong. He may have, well, he may have been right. That doesn't seem like that's what happened. I mean, uh, you well, know... It's like Henry's just off on his own talking about the fate of mankind every yeah. 10 minutes. I he mean, had a poor partner. So, yeah. so, so it's sort of like, okay, we're going to debate this clause by clause, but then everybody's talking about, you know, yeah. standing armies and the end of the, you know, everything's going to collapse and the union and sovereignty yes. and the revolution. And, and so it does seem that they have a hard time sort of keeping it on you know, tangible clauses of powers or that sort of thing. Or maybe that's just the way you wrote it. I mean, is that your no, sense of it? No, I think that's it? absolutely We would love to see this nice logical debate, yeah. but that isn't really how it happens. Well, if you think about it, it's a, that's a microcosm of what you were saying to start with, the problem yeah. as the anti-federalist faced. Yeah. So not completely, but mostly the Federalist in the Richmond Convention followed James Madison's lead, mm. and he coordinated things very carefully, uh, he, you know, men played to their particular strength, but but they were following his lead. Yeah. And the anti-Federalists were more scattershot. Yeah. And they weren't, some were following Henry's lead and some were following Mason's lead, but yeah. Mason and Henry were not, not on the same page. They were not on yeah. the same page about how to proceed. Yeah. And, well, you know, well, Mason hadn't been in, in the in the House of Delegates for years, probably. That's had a, he? I that's mean, a very Whereas good Henry'd been there in politics and Mason, I mean, that's that's a 1760s phenomenon for him. You're right about that. Absolutely. So yeah. what people knew about him or how he thought. But, yeah. and, and he also seems completely irascible, sort of, I don't care what other people think. Yes. I'm going to do it my way. Well, anyway. that was the characteristic of, yeah. of George Mason. Like yeah. he, he well, he's an elder statesman yeah. at this point, too. Yeah. I mean, I guess Henry is, too. But, but he just didn't care. Yeah. And this is one of the things I really admired about George Mason. He just didn't care what anybody yeah. else thought about what he was saying and doing. Yeah, and so well, in that sense, he was the yeah. exact opposite of Edmund Randolph, who cared constantly <laughs> about what everybody thought about Randolph him. cared what you think about him. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, the, right. that's We know that. He said that. So, yeah, that's, that's really great. And I think that, um, you know, Mason comes out really poorly in this book in the end, I think, particularly, because Henry has this magnanimous, you know, I'm going to use all the powers within the Constitution to amend it and make it better. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're not going to go to violence. I think might be the quote. Yes. And then, and then it seems like Mason tries to organize uh, the anti-federalists right after the vote is lost, and you know, send some kind of you know words of the minority or something like the Pennsylvania d delegation did. Yes, you know? he does do that. He tries to incite. Uh, I don't know. Public unrest is the right uh, term, but certainly public resistance yeah. to. Uh, ratification of the Constitution, and so um, after they've uh, voted, and then they've stayed for two more days uh, working through amendments, then he calls a secret meeting. We've never discovered the contents of the address he gave, but it was apparently so 
incendiary that even Patrick Henry said, okay, we have voted and we have lost and we had all better go home. Yeah. And it was a kind yeah. of a scorched earth approach that, yeah. that Mason took. He had already lost his lifelong friendship with George Washington by that Not time. Not that he cared. Not that he <laughs> cared, but, but that had gone yeah. the wayside. And, and I think part of why Mason is not remembered on the same level as even Patrick Henry yeah. uh, has to do with the immediate reaction in Virginia and across the country yeah. to the spreading of this information that he had tried to uh, yeah. subvert the rule of law. Well, I've always, uh, there's a so that relationship with Washington is an interesting one because, of course, you know, and you well know, I mean, Washington, you know, tries to put Patrick Henry on the Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, and um, obviously Mason dies by 1792. Mm -hmm. But um, it's clear that Washington respects the way Henry handled himself in that yes. debate. That men with different opinions can disagree. And, you know, and that he works with him as a political ally later on against Madison, you know, and um, but yet he never makes up with Mason and, and um, Washington and Mason never kind of come together. No, again they never come together again. I think, yeah. you know, Washington wrote about his admiration for what Henry did in yeah. the Virginia Convention, which was to, you know, concede defeat. Yeah and be a peaceful citizen, yeah. Yeah. if still a, a vigorous critic of yeah. uh, some federal powers, although that, that changed somewhat over time. But there was no way, I think, for Washington to admire what George Mason did, hmm. which is, um, you know, to attempt, I mean, it failed, because all of the other anti-federalist leaders around him rebuked Right. This secret call for some kind of extra yeah. legal action, but there was really no way for George Washington, with the values he had, and the work that he had done, there was no way to be admiring of that or conciliatory toward it the way he could be with yeah. Patrick Henry. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a letter from Lund, Washington, uh, when after George Washington is be going to become president, Lund is one of his mm -hmm. managers, cousin. Nephew, Summer, yeah, somebody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you should know this. In which, uh, so it's probably like February of 1789. It's before he, you know, he's obviously he's inaugurated in April 1789. It's before he's left Mount Vernon to go to New York, and uh, he reports um, that uh, Mason's at the Stafford County Courthouse uh, spreading rumors about George Washington not paying his debts, oh. and uh, I always thought that that was like a key element. Of the long uh, of the hatred that Washington's going to show to Mason, or lack of interest in reconciliation, yeah. is that if you're out there spreading yes. personal rumors about me, that would be the thing that separated it. But I think your book opened up another at, uh, angle to that whole story that I hadn't really known. Well, I think Washington was upset with uh, Mason in yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, and that's what I, that's what came yeah. across to me. I think, and there was nothing that Mason did in the ensuing ten to twelve months to attempt to remedy that. He was not a man given to remedying yeah. breaches. <laughs> he was a revolutionary, like yes. them all, you know. You're surprised they all could get along with yeah. anybody. So, um, so I mean, I think it, yeah. I think there were different moments where Washington felt embarrassed by um, things that George Mason said mm. and did. Um, and he, you know, he stood for the rule of law. I mean, his whole... Yeah. Um, 
essence was peaceful exercise of power and relinquishment of power. Mm-hmm. And so what Mason did that last day in Richmond really, I, I think, flew in the face of most of what Washington had tried to stand for during his whole public life. Mm-hmm. So even though they've been, you know, friends and business partners and their children are the step-grandchildren and the stepchildren had been friends with George Mason's children. There there was just no way past that, although Washington burned a lot of bridges with people, right? Like, even though he and Madison were deeply connected in 1788 and and corresponding all the time between Richmond and and Mount Vernon, they had a breach, and I don't think they ever spoke again after the... uh, no. Factional split within Washington's administration. Absolutely not. And I, I believe that in Washington's last two weeks of his life, he's ranting about something he's reading in the newspaper that Madison had wrote. Um, and did he did he ever um, have a reconciliation with Jefferson? No. No. No, no. Yeah. Not at all. In fact, um, Martha Washington famously said that the two worst days of her, in her life were when uh, George Washington died in the day that Thomas Jefferson came to Mount Vernon. Oh, that's right. And, and Nellie <laughs> yeah. refused to call him the president. Right? Uh, is that, uh, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. So there's, there's some a, correspondence in there's her some, uh, letters like he's debased the... That's right, yeah. Yeah, so there's, um, yeah, there's some animosity there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, Washington, yeah, he had enemies. There's no doubt about that. And uh, But that enemies that had formerly been his allies. Sure. You know, yeah. you see this in the British Army as well. And I guess Jefferson and Adams just lived long enough to lay all that down. Well, and they, like Edmund Randolph, are worried about what historians are going to write about them. A lot more so. I mean, Washington is too, I think, but it's it's harder to get at. He doesn't write an autobiography like Jefferson's political anass, and he certainly isn't like Adams writing letters about how everybody, all the history books got it wrong, you know, and, you know, attacking Mercy Otis Warren over and over again and all that. So he's posing for posterity for sure, but he's posing in the, in the way that he, you know, his motto is, uh, you know, Exodus acta probat. You know, the result is the test of the action. Yeah. Actions speak louder than words. He's not gonna yeah, help a, us. Yeah, <laughs> but he's deeply interested in yeah. the preservation he of is. records. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, the papers but, of yeah. the of the war. He gets yes. those organized and yeah, all that, yeah. and, and he lets people work in them. And, mm-hmm. But uh, well, he realizes their value, and he is posing for posterity. Sure. I think. We, we would like a little more help, I think. Well, I like to think, though, not out of self-interest so much as responsibility. Hmm. I mean, I think one thing that is distinctive about that generation in Washington in particular is a recognition of the historical moment yeah. and the importance All the eyes of, of the world history. are upon us. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not a—I mean, it seems arrogant, but it's— it's really just yeah. a, a, the reality of the world they were in. And so I, I think the mindfulness about a record of what went on yeah. is um, is important. Thank goodness. Well, Thank goodness for us. they did that. Absolutely. That's right. We'd all, we'd all be out of business if not, right? Well, it's an interesting question about Washington, like where he got that sense, too, because he doesn't have a formal education. Uh, no. You know, but, uh, but I think you're right. You're absolutely right. And... Um, you know, the volume, I mean, right from the start, you know, he's the papers of the revolution. I mean, it's 75. It's yes. before even independence, you know, he's. Yeah, but he, he sees it, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. he sees, mm-hmm. he sees the reality of the world he's in. Yeah. So. 
Well, that's why we built this library here at Mount Vernon, of yes. course, because he wanted it here. He wanted a big <laughs> library. Uh, I have only one house to build to house my papers, which yeah. may be interesting. I got taken into the vault yeah. to see some of the books uh, mm -hmm. that the books he owned, yeah. as well as uh, the library that he had. Yeah. Uh, the books that was. That's quite magnificent. It's a great collection. We have the Boston Athenaeum's got the largest collection. They've got about 300 volumes. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about Washington's library, it, when he dies, there's 900 volumes in it, is he doesn't inherit a large collection of books, uh, and, or he doesn't buy a bunch of books all at once either. Mm -hmm. He sort of amasses it over a lifetime of oh. self-education. Yeah. So the earliest things he has are books on conical mathematics when he's a surveyor. And then he starts buying books on, you know, the uh, military science when yeah. he's colonel of the Virginia regiment at age 22, and and then in agriculture and so on. And so he really, you know, he, it shows kind of his lifelong learning and education of himself as he's doing, but also reading. Yeah, I was talking with another story. one of the fellows. We, um, if you're a fellow, you get after hours access yeah. uh, to the grounds, yeah. and so we walked up. Um, at dusk mm. to the mansion and stood on the back porch and we were talking on the way back about that commitment to a lifelong education and yeah. a capacious yeah. curiosity about the world Absolutely. and a desire to just sort of yeah. learn how things work. I'm working right now on a, a 18th century South Carolina uh, project and when he made his tour of the southern yeah. states he was uh, very interested in the irrigation of Rice, rice crops absolutely yeah. in colonial South Carolina. I mean, in uh, well, early national yeah. South Carolina, they had nothing to do with what he was doing here. He just wanted to but, know yeah. how, how it, that how worked. It how yeah. it worked. Well, he was very much a, a part of the Enlightenment in this sense. He's yeah. not a philosoph like a Jefferson or, or you know, or, or you know, a Magnus like Franklin. But he is. Uh, he clearly believes that human beings can improve the world that they've inherited through reason and experiment. Yes. And he's. Yeah, he, that's it for him, and, and it's a big part of who he is, yeah. I think. So, um, yeah, he's, he's an extraordinary fella when we get down into him, <laughs> and that's why we're here at the Washington Library. Yes. Well, I want to thank uh, Lori for being here, and uh, I look oh, forward to... Oh, it's just a privilege. Thank yeah, you. Well, the, we look forward to your talk tonight, and uh, I think you'll have a, a nice, uh, appreciative audience. There's a lot of Virginians here, of course, who, who, who still think that everything they do is... Uh, is is as the fate of mankind involved in it. But at any rate. Maybe no Randolph ancestors uh, or descendants. No. I'll, I'll, I'll tread lightly. <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, I, well, they're all descended from Randolphs at some, at some level. We know that. All right, well, thank you so much, and, uh, uh, and uh, good day. Thank you, Doug. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.